You don't have to give me a kiss like that. Um, but if the rest of you all turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And while you're getting there too, we just want to say that, um, just announce this so we'll have opportunities to hear more about that. But, um, Regan, you back? Yeah. Hey, did you all hear this? Regan got a kidney. He's getting a kidney. All right. And, and we shouldn't be surprised about how amazing it is how it all happened. And, and we're going to hear in the next few weeks, give a chance to hear about that. We're going to get the font nose. We may not make, we may do a video that might make it easier so that you don't get up here and get nervous or whatever, but we want to share your story and what God did. And it's amazing. Marty called me this week to fill me in on everything. And I was just, and we shouldn't in some ways be amazed, should we? You know, we have a great God. He uses whatever means possible to accomplish his will. And his will was for now for Regan to get a kidney. Um, and, and I love uh, Regan's response to his mom as they've really battled this. And Lord, when are you going to when, when are you going to provide a kidney, or are you going to provide a kidney? And Lord, would, would you just do this or that? And and uh, she would. I'm just really concerned. I'm worrying about this. And I said something. I don't even know when it was. It's been a few months ago. But I said this that worry is an attack on the sovereignty of God. So Regan reminded his mom. His mom, let's don't worry because we're attacking the sovereignty of God when we worry. And uh, just what great faith, and uh, I look forward to, for you all to hearing all that happened to orchestrate this. So here soon, I think June 4th this week, you go for, is it right, go for the final um, okay, whatever, yeah. Now, there's a technical term for that. Okay is about as technical as I get when it comes to that. So praise God for that, um, and we're, we rejoice with you. Uh, we also got a wedding coming up this fall for you too, so a lot of things to rejoice about. Well, hey, hopefully you're in Philippians. We're working through the book of Philippians. Uh, this letter that Paul wrote while in prison to his beloved friends, the Church of Philippi, that he had visited twice already and had a great love for these people, which we've seen, and entitled the, the, the sermon series through Philippians called Finding Joy in Christ Alone. And my prayer is that so far as we've made our way through verse 4 of chapter 2, you begin to see why we entitled that, and hopefully you're finding your joy in Christ alone. And we're going to continue that this morning. But I'm going to read um, verses 5 through 11 now. The title of the message this morning is Be Like Christ, Part 1. So what's that mean? Be Like Christ, Part What's coming next? Two, that's right. And there may be a Part 3, all right? There's a lot here, but I'm going to read verses 5 through 11. We're only going to do five, teach through verses 5 through 8 this morning. But verses 5 through 11, uh, Philippians chapter 2, Paul writing again to his friends and brothers and sisters in Christ in Philippi. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Will we uh, read this passage of Scripture? And maybe we've read it before, maybe we've heard it before, maybe we've memorized it. And Lord, I, I know I've done all those, read it and memorized it and heard it and studied it, and Lord, every time I read it, I am taken aback about the amazing truths that are taught about your son here. And Lord, I pray, even if we're familiar with this passage, Lord, I pray you'd shake us. That 
we would not be so familiar that we miss the great truths that are contained in this, truths that will change our lives, that not will, but can and always will continue to do so. Lord, I pray for all of us here this morning that Lord, we would approach this time in your word together in humility with great expectation for you to do what only you can do, and that is enlighten our hearts and our minds to understand, to embrace, to trust, and to be changed and apply this word in our lives. But we look forward to hearing from you, from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by testing your memory. How many of you all, I'll give it to you, there's a popular commercial of 1991. First of all, how many of you were not born in 1991? You weren't born yet, okay? You weren't born yet in 1991. Okay, wow. A lot more of you than I thought. Okay, 1991, there's a popular commercial. And even if you were born after that, you'll probably recognize the commercial. Now, I'm just going to give you the words, and then I'm actually going to show you, because I can't do this commercial justice. I don't, I'm not normally a video guy, but I just couldn't do this, 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 this commercial justice for you all to really understand what I'm trying to get at. But it begins like this. It, it, it begins, sometimes I dream that he is me. You've got to see that that's how I dream to be. I dream to move. I dream. I groove. All right, maybe you know where I'm going. All right, go ahead, Zach, play this. Now, how many of you have ever seen that commercial? Even if you weren't born in 1991, all right? Most of us have seen that commercial. And back in that day, every kid that I, I knew of wanted to be like Mike. And they saw that commercial, and they wanted to drink Gatorade and be like Mike. They wanted to be able to, to soar. They wanted to be able to move and groove. They wanted to be able to fly like Michael Jordan. And uh, in that day, if you wanted to be a basketball player, and probably even this day, if you wanted to be a basketball player, it wouldn't be a bad idea to be like Mike but this morning, God, through Paul, is calling us to infinitely greater things. He's calling us and commanding us to be like Christ. Not like Mike, but like Christ. Yet the way in which he calls us to be like Christ is not to move and groove and, and soar to new heights with all the lights and hoopla of being like Mike, but instead to be like Christ. God calls us to step out of the limelight, away from the hoopla, away from the heights and all the lights and the earthly fame and to go low for the sake of others. In the end, when we, be like, when we, we come like Christ and when we see that we can be like Christ in his humiliation, going low for the benefit of others, yes, one day we, it will result in exaltation. 
But for our time here this morning, we want to focus on being like Christ in his humiliation, going low for the sake of others. Well, before we dive into our verses this morning, let's be reminded of where in Philippians we are and how we got here and how this passage that we're going to be looking at in verses 5 through 8 this morning, how, how it fits into to the, the, this letter to the church of Philippi. It's important to make sure we get the context right. So two weeks ago, not everybody was here, obviously, but two weeks ago, I'll, I'll remind those who were, and I'll let everybody else know where we were. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give three sermons in one. I'm going to preach the last two sermons in about a minute and a half. All right, we're going to have another one this morning. All right, so the verse, chapter one, verses 27, uh, we, we saw there, and you can look there, chapter one, verse 27. Every translation except one has something uh, along this lines, uh, along this line only, or just one thing. There's one demand. It's actually the word monos, where we get the word mono one. And, and, and it, it's, it, Paul is saying, if you don't do anything else, do this just one thing. Just one thing. And what was that one thing? To conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Just one thing. And that's the overarching imperative for the rest of the book. For the rest of this letter, only, remember this one thing, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And, and, it, 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 it not only, and everything that comes after this one big imperative expands and explains what it means or what it looks like to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how do you do that? How do you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? In, in verses 28 through 30, we learn that we're to conduct ourselves in a manner of, worthy of the gospel by standing firm and fearing not in the face of those who hate the gospel. And then last week, as we looked at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, we learned that to conduct ourselves in, the manner, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ was to do so through selfless humility. That was verses 1 through 4. And, and we saw this imperative, uh, which is really the heart there of that, this, this conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel through selfless, selfless humility. In verses 3 and 4, you can look there again with me. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but humility of mind. Regard one another as more important yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. There it is, selfless humility. We do things not for what we get out of them, but for what others get out of them. We put ourselves behind and everyone else before. They're more important. And I know many people, when you say that, they say, well, that's dangerous if you did that. I mean, you're not looking out for yourself. And what did I say? We do a great job of looking out for ourselves, don't we? Same thing, the Bible never tells you to, 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 to serve yourself. The Bible never tells you to look out for yourself because we do that well. Also, the Bible never tells you to love yourself. Do you know that? never tells us to love ourselves. Why? Because we do a great job already at it. All right, it tells us to love, it says to love others like we love ourselves because God knows how we love ourselves. We'll do anything to protect ourselves, anything to love ourselves. Right, but here he has to tell us to do something different, to look out for the interest of others. And when we do that, it's not dangerous. And we're going to see why this morning, why that's not dangerous and why it's what God calls us to do. But th this is a c clear imperative, and it, this actually imperative is so clear that it's the, the key imperative uh, uh, to, in basically how to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. He spends basically all of chapter 2 fleshing this one imperative out, selfless humility. And we, we, he'll use himself as an example. We saw, we, I went through this last week, he uses Timothy as an example, he uses Epaphroditus as an example. But he's going to use the greatest example, the purest and most wonderful illustration and example of selfless humility ever 
right here first. And that's verses 5 through 11, and again, verses 5 through 8 this morning. So he begins with a perfect illustration of Christ Jesus. Look at verse 5 with me. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In a sense, he says, be like Christ. Be like Christ. Well, notice that command, have this attitude in yourselves. And, and uh, this attitude, your translation might say mind. It, it's a mindset. It's not just having something running through your, through, through your brain. It's actually a mindset. You're committed to doing this. You're committing to having this kind of attitude, this kind of, thing, this, this, this kind of desire that will turn into action. It's a commitment to this. So what is the attitude the believers in Philippi and all believers are to have? Well, it points back. Right, this is a bridge verse between verses 3 and 4 and verses 6 through 11. That verse 5 is a bridge verse. So first it points back to verses 3 and 4 to the attitude of selfless humility, placing others' needs and interests before your own. Now notice the, the, the last part then in verse 5. It says, which was also in Christ Jesus. Our mindset said an attitude of selfish humility is to be, not only are we called to do that, but it was just like it was in Christ Jesus. Just like it is in Christ Jesus or was seen in Christ Jesus. So not only does it point back to verses 3 and 4, but this verse points forward to verses 5 through 11. And specifically, look at the phrase in verse 8. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. It's the exact same principle of selfless humility we saw in verses 3 and 4. So it points back, have this attitude, what? Selfish humility, which you also found in, which we also find in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself. See how the humilities are connected there by this verse. And, and that always concerns me when I read, what concerns me, but um, uh, it always humbles me, probably is the best way, when I see like Christ. So think about this. Love others like Christ loved you. Oh, man. And if I can love others like this guy does, I'm going to be a lot better off. I mean, I, I can do that. But like Christ? Or how about this? Forgiving others just as God and Christ forgave you. Can't we just say forgive others and leave off the last part? The standard is not your next door neighbor or the very best person you can think of. It's not the very best Christian you can think of or your Christian leaders or people you respect. The standard is Jesus Christ. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. There's the standard of selfless humility. Because maybe you just stop with verses 3 and 4. You think, well, I know somebody's kind of humble and selfless a little bit. I'll just kind of be like them. Paul doesn't let us off there. Like Christ. Like Christ. This attitude which was in Christ. Well, don't let that overwhelm you. Just know that God does not call us to things which he does not also supply us the power to accomplish. Because when you think about that, to be humble like Christ was humble. And when you see these verses, it could discourage you. But that's not Paul's intent. Well, before we examine these, these verses, let me give you an outline um, all the way, really, verses 6 through 13. And just to let you know, these will be my next three sermons. All right? I'm going to just precursor, all right? So today is in verses five, 6 through 8 is humiliation of Christ. Then verses 9 through 11 is exaltation of Christ. And then verses 12 through 13 is the empowering of Christ. Some people wonder, how does this all fit together? And I, and I think we'll see that over the next few weeks, how it all fits together. But you first begin, we begin with humiliation of Christ, then the exaltation of Christ, then the empowering of Christ. And that takes us down through verse 13. 
But our focus this morning is going to be verses 5 through 8, and we're going to examine the humiliation of Christ. Why? So we can be like Christ and humble ourselves like Christ did so that God might be glorified to the praise of his glory as we sung. So let's, we're going to look at the humiliation of Christ by examining three truths about his humiliation. So let's begin in verse 6. Look at verse 6 again with me. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here we see the first truth regarding the humiliation of Christ, his deity. Christ's deity, meaning he was a God. Notice the phrase there, existed in the form of God. Some translations say the nature of God, which is a very good translation of this word, form. It means essence, uh, nature, quality, uh, essential attributes uh, of a being. It's an outward form that is representative of an inward nature. So you see this, and you know that, it's, that what you see is what you get, in a sense. What you see is what's coming from the inside out. So this is a nature, this is the essence, all right? He existed in the form of God. And this phrase, existed in the form of God, is very important. And I know you, some of you can go, oh, we don't need to, that's getting a little too deep. But you know what? We'll miss something if we don't hear this. This phrase, existed in the form of God, is, an, is a present participle. So what in the world does that mean? Here's what it means. Christ existed as God in the past, that is before his incarnation, we're going to look at here in a second, and is still existing in the form of God. And, and you're thinking, well, where do you get that present participle? Remember, there are, there are things in, in Scripture. There's past, which is aorist, or also perfect. Uh, there's also present tense, which goes like this, right this. And he uses this present participle, means it's always been true, and it will continue to be true forever. It keeps going. He's saying he existed in the form of God, has always existed, is existing and will always exist in the form of God. He is God. Forever. From all eternity. And, and, and this, this understanding that Jesus is God from all eternity, we, we saw all through the Gospel of John. If you're visiting with us this morning, the last book I preached to was the Gospel of John. I, think, I don't know, 80 or 90 something messages through that. And throughout that, we saw this idea that Jesus was God uh, this beginning in the first two verses of John, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And we l- learn later on who was the Word. And the Word became flesh. Obviously, he was talking about Jesus. And dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Listen, glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John rings the bell of the deity of Christ in the very first verse. In the very first chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus is God. You ask my three-year-old, now he doesn't understand this. You ask James, who is Jesus? He'll say he's God. And that's good. All of our kids ought to be able to answer that question. Who's Jesus? We all ought to be able to answer that question. Who's Jesus? He's God. Well, not only saw that in, in John, but also later on throughout John. Here's another great one. Jesus said to them, speaking to the Pharisees, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. He didn't say I was. He says I am. And this is the divine name that we see in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses sees a burning bush and God's speaking to him out of this burning bush that's not consumed, which is amazing. He said, well, who shall I say sent me? And he tells him, tell him, I am sent you. This is the divine name, Yahweh. 
And, and he says, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus claims to be God. All throughout John, all throughout the New Testament. It's also prophesied that the Messiah would be God. Mighty God, right? In Isaiah. He was God. He is God. Paul begins his teaching on the humiliation of Christ by pointing to the fact that Jesus is God. Always will be God. Paul begins... I want you to see this, and I, and I wish I could show you my paper that I wrote on, all right? That I, I tell you, tell, tell our people here, and just if you're new here, all I do is I take a pass, an 8 by 10 and I print out what pass I'm going to preach on, and then I start marking it up all week long. And there's little things and arrows and all that kind of stuff on it, sometimes color and just notes all over it. And my kids see it because they move it around on the desk when they're using the computer or whatever, but it's sitting there. And, and, and I was trying to, how do I verbally or, or visually get the gist of the passage, but I want you to see this, is that he starts here, Jesus is God. And throughout this passage this morning, you're going to see this. You're going to see a descent. He starts, starts in the exalted position that Christ had from all eternity. And you'll see a descent, a descending of Christ throughout this passage. Now next week, we're going to get to the, to the low, in a sense, this morning of his humiliation. But next time we're in Philippians together, guess what happens? It's kind of like a V. Here's the exaltation, the exalted position of Christ as God to his greatest humiliation to his exalted again. And that's what happens in these patterns, verses 5 through 11. We're, we're just going to get down to the bottom part of it today, but you're going to see this. And I want you to see, he's, he, Paul starts and puts Jesus where he belongs, exalted in the heavens with the Father. And it's important for the Philippian believers and us to see, we did not and do not begin to humble ourselves from an exalted position. If you didn't hear anything this morning, when, we, when you see this call for us to humble ourselves, to be like Christ, we don't begin in an exalted position. We might think we do, but we don't. We're not like Christ in that. And I think that's what Paul is trying to get across here. If Jesus can humble himself from the exalted position of being God, how can we not humble ourselves? You may have gotten the whole passage right there. Right there. And he begins that way to get us where Jesus is exalted. And we begin to see Christ's descent in, in these next verses, even in the next phrase. Look at the next phrase in verse 6. Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Um, King James says, though it not, though it, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Uses the word robbery, and that seems, man, where did that come from? Well, what's that mean? This, he, he, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It means that Christ, although he was God had all, and had all the rights and privileges of God, did not selfishly hold on. The word here, the word grasp or robbery, means to hold on to something. Grip it tightly and not let it go. Right? He, he did not selflessly hold on to this, these, these, the powers and rights and privileges he had as being God the Son and use it for himself. He did not think it robbery. Think that he could hold on for good to his position and power and privileges. He thought it not robbery. Or, as the New American Standard says, he did not regard a call with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to. Peter O'Brien explains this well when he writes, Jesus did not regard his equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. He wasn't going to use it for himself. Remember, that's the whole point of this passage. We just did three and four. And people make these, these passages, just verses, say all kinds of things. But 
We're going to see importance of context here in a second. So the first truth that Paul wants us to see in, in the humiliation of Christ is his deity. Jesus is God. And we already begin to see a descent. He didn't want to hold on to that. It wasn't worth holding on to for his own selfish means or for his own exaltation, for his own advantage. All right, now let's look at, look at verse 7 with me. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Here we see the second truth regarding the humiliation of Christ, his incarnation. So we have his deity, now we have his incarnation. Notice the phrase, he emptied himself. Uh, translation, made himself nothing, made himself of no reputation, it might say. It means to make empty or to make of no effect. That's what the word just, just means in general, to make empty. That's why many translations just say emptied himself. Uh, there, there's been much written about this phrase. In fact, of all the phrases in this passage, verses 5 through 8, this phrase, emptied himself, um, actually it's a word, but the phrase we have in English has had more written on it than any other passage, any other phrase in this whole passage. In fact, there's been doctoral dissertations, much, many of them. That means about 120 pages of stuff written on that one phrase. I actually did a theology paper in seminary on this one phrase. It was just 18 pages, all right, not a doctoral dissertation, but it, there's a lot here. And uh, in fact, I think people make, make way too much of, this was the point of my paper, is that people make way too much of this, these, wor- ver- these, these words than they should. Uh, they're actually, I think, simple to understand, not difficult. You don't need a doctoral dissertation to understand these words. You don't need an 18-page theology paper to understand what Paul is getting at here. Uh, let, let me first of all say what this does not mean. All right. It does not mean that Jesus relinquished or gave up some of his divine attributes. What if Jesus gave up, meaning he, he relinquished, he no longer had his divine attributes, like omniscience or omnipotence? What if that had to happen? Then he would no longer have been God. And we've already seen that he exists forever as God. But so just some people who think that, just think about this. Omniscience. Uh, did he give up his omniscience? Did he no longer have an omniscience? Well, no. In, in John chapter 1, I'll go back to John verses 48 through 49, he's talking to Nathaniel. And Nathaniel's like, how did you know me? Well, I saw you sitting in the tree over there, and I knew exactly what you were thinking. Omniscience, right? And later on in chapter 2, verses 24 through 25 of, of John, he knew what was in the heart of man. That's what it says. He knew what was in the heart of man. That's what you call omniscience. He knows all things. And he did even when he walked on the earth here. How about omnipotence? Well, he just raised the dead. That's some omnipotence. Nobody else raises the dead but God. Right? Well, he also cast out demons. He had power over the spiritual things. He also had power over nature. He calms the storm. And in fact, in one of the Gospels, when he calms the storm when they're on the boat, the, 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 the disciples cry out. And I love this, 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 these words they use. They said, Behold, what manner of man is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him and the word there it's only used one other time in all of the new testament is also used in first john when it says behold what manner of man behold what manner of love is this and that word what manner is of what country this power is foreign is what they're saying he has omnipotence he has power over nature and only god has power over nature so did jesus give up his divine attributes when he was here no he had them he was fully intact as being god well, the best way to understand what the phrase emptied or made himself nothing or made himself no reputation is to look at the context. And Paul doesn't leave any room for debate as to what this phrase means. 
That's why I like Paul. He just doesn't let him wiggle room or it might mean this. Paul's just kind of right straightforward, isn't he? So look, he does this and explains what this phrase by the next two phrases in the passage. In fact, the grammar demands that we understand this phrase emptied himself by the next two phrases. Paul explains himself. I don't know why all those guys writing the doctoral dissertation would just write that. Emptied himself. Here's what it means. Right there. Taking the form of bond serving and being made in the likeness of men. Sign the paper. Turn it in. Done. Probably because they get an F because they're supposed to do 120 pages. But find something else to write on. This one's easy. And I don't mean that sarcastically or arrogantly. It is. Paul made it very simple. So we, we see what it means to empty himself in the next two phrases. The first phrase there we want to look at is take, taking the form of a bondservant or taking the form of a slave. What rights does a slave have? And this word here is, is used in, in the context of the New Testament, slave, all right? The word doulos, actually it's not really a word. It, it, I won't get into all that. But the word slave here means they have no rights. They have no rights. And he uses this. He says he takes the form of a slave. In the same way, Jesus, God the Son, gave up his rights to use his divine attributes and position and power independently of God the Father. That's what it's saying here. He gave up his rights to use his divine attributes, which he still has, omnipotence and, and, and omniscience and all the other ones. He gave up his right to use them independently for his own use, his own glory in a sense, of what God the Father would have him do. All through the book of John, you see this. I only do what the Father tells me. I only do what the Father tells me. Well, um, and yet in this, in giving up his rights to um, using him independently, he doesn't give up his deity. I love what F.F. Bruce says, speaking of the slave. Not that he exchanged the form of God for the form of a slave, but that he manifested the form of God in the form of a slave. He didn't give one up to take on another. He added one. He added the form of a slave to his deity. So look, look at the, uh, the, the, the second phrase here, being made in the likeness of men. Now, here we go again for a little grammar, but this is why I told you the last one was important. This one is, is too. Being made is an aorist participle. All right? So what, what this means, together with the preposition in, means coming into a state or position of being. You, you, no, he... he to come into a state or, 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 or position of being, you used to not be in it. So he was not in the likeness of man. But here it says, he came in to the likeness of man. He, he, he added humanity to his deity. And, and it's contrasted with that existed in the form of God, which I said was a present participle. He always existed in the form of God, but he didn't always exist in the form of man. And he said, so he added, he came into this likeness of man. And, and, and um, the, the term uh, likeness here means fully identified with the human race. All right, just that likeness. He's fully identified in the human race. And you see that all throughout the Gospels. I love what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus in 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He, 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 he experienced everything that humans can experience as a human. Now this whole thing about 
he existed forever in the form of God, he took on, he added to that existing form of God, his deity, his humanity. It's called the incarnation. It's a big word we hear, we sing about it in the Christmas hymns, right? Incarnate deity, right? Christ, the incarnate deity. It means to take on flesh is what incarnate means. To in, incarnation means he took on flesh. He added to and didn't take away his deity. He added to it. Only God could do that. And he came in the likeness of man and experienced everything that man, as a man, could experience. Uh, do, do you see the descent that Jesus is making? We started here. Exalted. In the form of God. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he emptied himself. See where we're going? And it explains what emptying himself means here in verse 7. He took on the form of a slave and became in the likeness of man. He was fully God, fully man. This is the mystery and I would say the grandness of the incarnation. Instead of using his e equality with God and independent use of his divine attributes for his own advantage, he chose the path of selfless humility and took on flesh for our benefit. For our benefit. That's why he took on flesh. It's for our benefit. We must believe the truth of the incarnation. We must believe the truth of the incarnation. That Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. And we must teach this to our children. What? Teach it to our children? Come on, Jesus loves, just tell them Jesus loves them. Well, you know what? If Jesus is no more than a man, I really don't care if he loves me or not because my dad loves me. My wife loves me. Now, I'm glad they love me. But if he's just a man, it doesn't mean any more than someone else loves me. You see where we're going? So we've got to teach them way more. We've got to teach them who Jesus is. And when they know who Jesus is, and we say Jesus loves you, he loved you so much, he gave up his life for you, then it's a wow. It's like, well, you know, Jesus, Jesus loves you. He's just a regular old guy like the guy next door. Or maybe he's a little bit better than the guy next door. No, he's not. He's God. Fully God, fully man. That's why this is so important. In fact, it's so important that if Jesus was not fully God and fully man, he cannot be the perfect sacrifice for sin. Where does that leave us? We're still in our sin. We're still under the just wrath of God because of our sin. We, we, we've offended a holy God. If he's just a regular old man, and if he was just fully God but he didn't become a man, he still wasn't the perfect sacrifice for sin because he must be a man to die in our place. Men deserve the wrath of God, so man must die for the wrath of God. They must die for the penalty of sin. So a man had to die, and a man did. But the man was not just a man. He was also fully God. And I know you're thinking, wow, how does that all work out? I don't know either. It's just what the Scripture says. And when those people come knocking at your door like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, they don't believe this. And when your kid doesn't know this truth and you don't know this truth, you go, oh, you're talking about Jesus too. Well, well, come on in. Let's talk about Jesus. Oh, man, you love Jesus? I love Jesus too. The only difference is that they don't believe the same Jesus that we believe in. They believe he was just a good old guy, just a good man. That's it. And that's all, and they believe some other goofy things about him too, but, but it just boiled down. He was no more than, better than we, you and I. And I don't want a Savior that's no better than me or the best man I can possibly think of. Am I getting a little excited about this? You bet, because it's worth getting excited. People have died for this truth. And Paul wrote this truth and, and expounded on this truth and, and, and probably the most beautiful nugget of truth about the incarnation of all the scriptures right here. 
He doesn't want us to miss it. And I don't want you to miss it this morning. That's how important it is. Teach it to your kids, whether they can understand it or not, because you can't either, right? It's what the truth is. It's what the truth of the Scripture, and it's important. It's so much important. It's the difference between not only life and death, but eternal life and eternal death. You guys play, pray for my buddy Irwin, who came to visit me a couple weeks ago, who's a Jehovah's Witness, and I had a great conversation with him, and I'm praying for him. I told him to come back um, because I want to talk to him more about what the Scripture really says so that he, too, might know eternal life through the perfect God-man. Well, we're now to cover the first two truths Paul wants us to see in humiliation of Christ, his deity and his incarnation. Now let's look at verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, or your translation may be being found in human form or fashion as a man. Um, uh, There there in verse 8. This is the third truth regarding the humiliation of Christ. His humble obedience to death. His humble obedience to death. Have you seen the descent? We started... Right here, right? He's exalted. He's God. And, and he became man in, in form of man, in the likeness of man. And now we're going to see something even more amazing. Uh, just that first phrase there in verse 8, being found in appearance of man, appearance, speaking of outward appearance or form, all right, it, it stresses that those who saw Jesus, they saw him as a man. They saw him eat and drink. They saw him sleep. Why? Because he was a man. He was fully man. And he's just, Paul's just reiterating that. And what it does, Paul is stressing his humanity again, preparing us for the next statement in verse 8. He's a man. He's reminded us, Jesus was a man. Now look at the rest of verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not only did Christ humble himself by adding humanity to his deity, but he further descended and humbled himself by dying a death he did not deserve. I mean, it was humbling enough to come here and, and, and set aside the, 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 the use of, anytime he wanted to, his rights and privileges and his divine attributes, setting those aside for a time to come under the, the, the submission of the Father. It's humbling enough to do that and come and live in a sinful world. That's, that's humbling when you're perfect. None of us can relate to that. That's humbling enough, but he went beyond that to the point of death, even death on a cross. I love what Peter O'Brien says here. He says, he emptied himself in becoming a human being, and then having become human, he humbled himself further. And I would probably add, even if that wasn't humbling enough, he humbled himself further. Another point of emphasis that, that is being made here in this passage is this was a voluntary humbling. Nobody was holding a gun to his head. Nobody was forcing him. First of all, if they did, nobody could force him anyway because he was God. But nobody was forcing him to do this. He did it voluntarily. And he makes this point in John. Oops, go back here. John 10, 18 says this. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my father. He did it voluntarily. And by emphasizing this, Paul is calling the believers in Philippi to make the same choice and humble themselves and put others' needs before their own. Not only this, we are called, unlike Christ, to humble ourselves from a non-exalted position. All of us here are followers of Christ. We are called, yes, we were were made in the image of Christ, the image of God, that's a beautiful thing, but we fell, right? We fell in Adam. We sinned. We, we've broken 
God's commandments. We've broken God's law to obey him and love him and glorify him with all of our life. We, broke, we don't do that. We're sinful. So we're not starting an exalted position. We're starting at a non-exalted position. And here it is, from the greater to the lesser, right? If he can humble himself from an exalted position, we can humble ourselves from a non-exalted position. And, and to do what? Well, what it says in verses 3 and 4, to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. He humbled himself. Will you? He, the perfect God-man, humbled himself. Will we? We're commanded by God's grace to be like Christ in his humiliation. The good news is we can do this. Why? Because he did. That's why. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His ultimate act of humiliation paid the penalty of death we owed for our sin. And his death on the cross turned away the just wrath of God from us on himself. That's the word propitiate, to turn away wrath. He turned his death on the cross and subsequent resurrection and ascension turned away the wrath of God from us onto him. And his death and subsequent resurrection and ascension also guaranteed that we would be indwelt by his spirit to be enabled and empowered to follow his example. To do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But the humility of mind, regard one another as more important yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. We can because he did. Because he sent his spirit to dwell in us. Well, let me ask you this question as we close. If we were going to be like Mike, we saw in the video, if you're going to be like Mike, what would have to happen if you could be like Michael Jordan? <laughs> it didn't even happen. I mean, the only thing I can think of is, if I'm be like, I mean, I can drink all the Gatorade I want. It doesn't work. I tried. All right? I cannot be like Michael Jordan. I couldn't even in my best day, in my best shape, I could never be like Michael Jordan. It's amazing. How could that happen? Well, what would have to happen is Michael Jordan would have to come behind me if this was, you could do this. He would take a zipper like this on the back of me and he would have to step inside of me. That's the only way I could be like Mike. That's, there's no other way I could be like Michael Jordan. And if you were going to be like Christ and live a life of selfish humility... What would have to happen? Christ would have to do the same thing. He would have to get inside of me for me to be selflessly humble. And you know what? He did. He did. And if you know Christ this morning, he is inside of you. But let me ask you this question. Is he inside of you? The other Gatorade commercial, is it, is it in you? Is he in you? Because if he's in you, then you can live a life of selfish humility. You can put others before yourself. And who gets the glory in that? Not you. He does. Isn't that beautiful? For all those who repent, turn from trusting in themselves, and trust in what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that he might be in you. Is he in you? My prayer is today he would be in you if he's not already. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this amazing passage of Scripture, this humiliation. Lord, you, the God of all the earth, sent your Son, who's God from all eternity, to take on flesh so that we might have life and we might live in a way that glorifies you, that we might live selflessly, not selfishly, 
the glory of you and the good of others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning is uh, the first Sunday of the the month, and we're going to celebrate what we've just been talking about. Christ gave his life 